Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Kate Morantz. Kate is a creative entrepreneur and blogger. After graduating from the Smith School of Business at Queen's University in 2008, Kate worked in various marketing and strategy-based roles at large organizations. In parallel, she developed a lifestyle blog as well as a handmade sticker shop on the Etsy platform. In early 2017, she left her corporate job to pursue her entrepreneurial passion full-time. Her blog, Beyond the Safe Harbor, is devoted to helping women boost their impact, master their money, and better themselves so that they can unlock their most meaningful lives. You'll find advice on starting and growing a side hustle, navigating through life events like buying a house and getting married, and lots more. In my interview with Kate, we discuss the benefits and challenges of entrepreneurship, how to choose a home when moving in together, and paying for your dream wedding without derailing your financial goals. Without further ado, here's my interview with Kate Morantz. Hi, Kate. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing excellent. It's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So a year and a half ago, you took a leap of faith and quit your well-paying corporate job to pursue your entrepreneurial passion full-time. Walk us through the journey that led you to this point. Sure, and that's a great question. For me, there were kind of two moving pieces at play. The first was my blog, which is something I've been blogging off and on actually since back in 2012. I started with a beauty blog and then that evolved into a lifestyle blog. So I always kind of had this desire to write and to share. And it was something that I did always as not even a side hustle, it was more of a side hobby that I did as I was working full time. And I was working on that, enjoying it, but still, you know, had no real desire to take it full time. And then I discovered Etsy. So for those who aren't familiar with Etsy, it's similar to eBay in that there are sellers from across the world selling products, but it's specifically focused on um, vintage products and handmade items. So in 2015, I got really interested in glam planning, which is essentially decorating your planner kind of like a scrapbook and making it more of a memory keeper. So it was just a hobby that I got into similar to blogging, but I found that I was spending a lot of money on stickers and supplies for my planner and figured that I could probably make my own relatively easily. So in October 2015, I started my own shop on Etsy called Kate Lauren Design, and I basically printed and cut my own stickers that could be used in planners and scrapbooks. So I'm still working full-time and just kind of starting these businesses and exploring the entrepreneurial side. And as time goes on, even within a few months of launching my Etsy shop, I'm finding that 
my Etsy shop is actually bringing in money. I had my first thousand dollar month only three months after actually launching my Etsy shop, which was shocking to me. And my blog, on the other hand, was just this money suck. Like I wasn't actually making any money from it. Instead, I was just pouring a lot into it and not really seeing much of a return, even though I enjoyed it. So I managed both of these businesses as I was working. And it just kind of got to a point where I started seeing an opportunity to actually give them more time and focus. So it was near the end of 2016. And I just felt like I was getting so much learning and development from pursuing Etsy and my blog that I really wanted to give it a shot. So I did a lot of thinking and soul searching because it was going to be a huge decision to actually choose to leave my corporate job. But there were three things that it really came down to. So the first thing was knowing that I had a really strong desire to grow my businesses, but I didn't think I'd be able to do it on a full-time basis. So I think really, if you have a side hustle and see it as a side hustle, it's very different. But for me, I thought, you know what? I would love to be an entrepreneur full-time and I won't be able to get there in terms of really growing my businesses without dedicating way more time than I had been. And second, I identified that there was no really better opportunity for me to pursue it. I always thought that I'd wait until we had a family before I really took things to the next level. But I figured at that point in my life, I probably won't have the same time and energy to really dedicate to getting things off the ground in a really aggressive way. And then last, when I really looked at the numbers, I saw that I was earning enough from even Etsy alone to cover my monthly expenses. And I had enough savings that would give me a bit of buffer, even if things changed. So that made me feel comfortable making the leap. So in 2017, so early last year, I made the leap to focusing on these two businesses full time. I spent the first six or so months focusing specifically on growing my SC business because that's where I would see the greatest return on my time investment. And then in September of last year, I relaunched my blog, Beyond the Safe Harbor, and that is now my main focus. Beyond the Safe Harbor is really targeted towards women who really want to make a bigger impact and pursue their dreams. So I talk uh, about personal development. I talk about making a difference. And then also talk a lot about financial freedom. So I think that's probably the area that would be of most interest to your listeners. Specifically talk about ways to make money. I talk about ways to save money. And then I also have some posts around smart spending. I've taken a look at Kate's blog and definitely check it out. It's very interesting. It has topics for people from all different walks of life. So definitely make sure to check it out. I'll include it in the show notes. Thanks for sharing your amazing story. Not spending two hours commuting into the office every day must be nice. What are some of the benefits of being self-employed? I think the biggest one is being able to wear whatever I want because before I would spend a lot of time getting ready, like not necessarily every day, but if you look at how much time in a given week I would spend getting ready for work, it definitely added up. So it's nice now that I have the flexibility to wear my gym clothes all day and I don't have to worry about, you know, changing or putting on makeup and doing my hair and all of that. So that is one thing that's really nice not to have to think about. It's also really convenient being home during the day because it makes it easy for, you know, getting deliveries if contractors are by. Um, we just had a roofer come, quote, uh, redoing our roof. And 
he didn't have to just leave the quote in the mailbox. We could actually talk about it because um, I'm here and I have that flexibility. I also find that in most cases I eat healthier because I can cook my own lunch every day and I can have fresh food versus packing it in advance. And I have more flexibility with the hours that I can do things. So if, for example, I want to do some meal prep during the day and I don't want to be doing all that stuff in the evenings, I can carve out some time in the middle of the day to do household tasks like meal planning, laundry, and things like that. So it just gives me greater flexibility and helps a lot with um, work-life balance because I'm not spending every evening just cramming all of those chores into a few hours. Definitely. I mean, I recently quit my full-time job on June 1st. And as, as you mentioned, it's nice being home and being able to get some of your chores done, but it's important to be focused as well. So that kind of segues us into our next question. Being an entrepreneur isn't all fun and games. What are some of the biggest challenges of being your own boss? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll pick up where you left off. So just the lack of structure even though it can be a pro and sometimes it can also be challenging if you're the type of person that craves structure. So one of the hardest things is you really don't have a sounding board the way you do in the corporate world. You don't have a manager that you can go to to ask questions. You don't have someone else approving your goals and giving you guidance on how you should be prioritizing your work. So you really have to rely on friends, mentors, other entrepreneur friends, loved ones, if you want to get that kind of insight and input, you just have to do more work to kind of get that feedback. And you also have to motivate yourself. So, you know, thankfully, that's not something that I struggle with. But it's not always easy to motivate yourself to necessarily do the maximum you could do every day. So you really have to push yourself if you want to get strong results. And if you want to go outside your comfort zone, try things you haven't tried before, it's just, it all has to come from you. That's a definite shift that can be a challenge. It's also the type of thing that can be disheartening or discouraging. So you're used to when you work in the corporate world, getting positive feedback and having that kind of system set up to reward you if you are achieving great things and if you're putting in a lot of effort. But when you're running your own business, sometimes you, you lack that, especially if you don't see the results that you're expecting and you're doing everything on your own in kind of this isolated bubble, that can feel challenging. And then also, you know, the, the financial ramifications. So in most cases, when, at least in my experience, when people go out on their own, especially when they're trying to transition from side hustle to full-time, they're not earning as much at the get-go that they are when they were working a full-time job. So I think there's a lot that kind of goes with that, both kind of the the changes to your lifestyle that you might need to make and the actual like fundamental difference in earning less and saving less. But at the same time, there's also this component of just if you feel that a lot of your identity was tied to your career and to your strengths in your job, that kind of part falls away. And now, you know, you really are fully responsible for everything you get out of your business. So there isn't this, you know, you get paid the same amount for a week of work in the corporate world, no matter how hard you work in most cases, Whereas when you're working for yourself, you really see that correlation between the amount you push yourself and the amount you get out. Totally. That was a great answer. Like speaking from personal experience, you really have to motivate yourself. And if you're Mm -hmm. not in the right frame of mind and perhaps you had a bad weekend, that can really affect how you perform in your business. So you really have to be focused and have your A game or else it can affect 
the results of your business. Absolutely. Great. So switching gears to real estate, you became a homeowner last September when you purchased a home in Burlington, Ontario. What motivated you to become a homeowner? So I think there were um, short-term and long-term factors. In the short term, I mean, we had been living in a small one-bedroom apartment for a few years and just kind of wanted more space and wanted to even like, we weren't afraid of having projects like, oh, now we have to you know, buy a lawnmower and mow the lawn or decorating and small repairs and things like that. We just, we didn't really have to do anything, which was a major pro. But at the same time, I think we were longing for more space, change of scenery, a new environment. I guess a bit of a challenge from the standpoint of a home where we could make it our own and have smaller projects to to improve the home further. And then from a longer term standpoint, it really made sense for us financially. We had both been renting and saving for you know close to 10 years. And we just kind of felt like it was a place for us to plant roots, um, one day raise a family. And we didn't really see downtown Toronto as being a feasible place to actually you know buy a home and, and start a family. So it was kind of that first step in preparing us for the longer term. Great. Now, you wrote an excellent blog post on how to choose a home when you're moving in together. Buying a home together is a big step in a relationship. How can couples help ensure it goes smoothly? Yeah, that's a good question. And in the post, I also talk a lot about if you are moving in together and you both have places, like say you're both um, renting, for example, how to go about figuring out if you should start somewhere fresh or move into one of your places, like have one of one of the two of you relocate um, because I think that's kind of a, a topic that people don't always talk about that has its, its own nuances. But I can speak now in terms of the actual transition to buying a home together. And I think a lot of that comes down to really having that open communication. So both individuals sharing what's important to them in a place, you know, especially if you're buying a home, because in that case, you're probably going to be there for longer than a few years. So looking at what's important to you in terms of the neighborhood, the location, the attributes of the house. Do you want a big backyard? How many bedrooms? You know, what types of hobbies and interests do you have that you would need the house to kind of be able to cater to? So for example, if you loved cooking and baking, you'd probably want to have a decent sized kitchen. So I think kind of starting things off by both people speaking about what's important to them and kind of aligning on criteria as a couple And then throughout the process, being careful to really listen to what your partner is saying and to have an open mind to what they think about the houses that you're seeing, but then also not being afraid to speak your own mind because, again, this is a huge decision and, you know, it's important that both of you really share what's on your mind. And then I think just doing your research on the home, the location, the neighborhood, and really comparing apples to apples because, when you're buying a house, especially when you think this could be your forever home, it's easy to get swept up in the emotion of actually you know, dreaming about what your life will be like. But at the same time, you need to still keep an eye to the facts and make sure that you're not getting into a bidding war and overpaying because you feel this emotional attachment that's not necessarily realistic. Looking at what types of things would impact the resale value. So for example, we saw a house that we really liked, but there were train tracks that were a little bit behind where the backyard was and you could hear the sound of freight trains going by. 
So that's the kind of thing that we might not mind, but it would probably impact the resale value. So just, you know, making sure that you're balancing your head and your heart. And then lastly, just pacing yourself because it's a long journey. We probably saw, I don't know, it must have been like over a hundred houses through, you know, showings and open houses over, you know, a four or five month period. So just don't be hasty, pace yourself. There will always be another house and there will most likely be a house that you like just as much as something that you might have to let go. So it's a journey. Don't rush yourself and take the whole thing really seriously because it's a huge decision. Yeah, and I also find it's helpful to take notes when you're viewing all these properties because honestly, when I was searching for a house for almost three years, I forgot about some of the houses that I saw. And yeah, I mean, you don't want to be forgetting about the features of the house. This is your single biggest purchase of your lifetime. So I find that it helps to take notes when you're looking at the property. And as long as it's not a bidding war, you have to make that decision that night. At least you can go home and look at all the pros and the cons and the comfort of your home and then make that decision because you want to make sure that it has everything that you want and you certainly don't want to make that decision hastily. Mm-hmm. And also like I, a lot of realtors will give you the sold information so you can go back and say, Oh, you know, there were these five houses that we were interested in last month. What did they end up selling for? So the research doesn't have to stop when you don't get a house or when you don't put in an offer think there's also a lot of value in looking back and then seeing what things went for and getting a really good feel for the market that way. Definitely. And speaking of bidding wars, you mentioned when you were house hunting that bidding wars were commonplace. Losing in a bidding war can be discouraging. I know that firsthand. I lost in several bidding wars when I was looking for a property. So how did you manage to stay motivated and keep searching for a home even after losing in bidding wars? Yeah, I think a lot of it was just we didn't get too attached to any home. So there were houses that we liked, but we recognized that each one had pros and cons. So if we didn't get a house, then okay, well, we were aware that there are plenty more houses out there. And each house had cons that we then knew might be present in a different house. So for example, we might miss out on a house with a gorgeous kitchen, but they didn't have as many bedrooms as we wanted. So then you know, okay, well, maybe we'll get a house with the number of bedrooms that we want. There's always like, there kind of is no perfect house. So you're just getting different variations that rank slightly differently on the criteria that matters most to you. I think that kind of takes the pressure off because you're not putting any one house on a pedestal and you're able to detach a bit. So I think that really helped us. And at least once a month, we would see a house that we really liked. So we didn't feel a sense of lack, like we felt like there was enough in the market that we'd be able to find something. So those types of things helped. And I think just when you're going through the process and you're taking a mindset of you don't want to overpay and you want to do everything with a really steady mindset and being really even keel, then that just, that helps you have more of a bias towards waiting and not getting overly emotionally invested. Just try to see it as a journey and as a process. Go into it knowing that it might take a while. And then I think you'll have yourself kind of in the right place that if something doesn't work out, you can move on to the next one. Definitely. And I think it helps that you're also a first-time home buyer because imagine the pressure of selling your house and then the property closing in maybe 60 or 90 days and having to find a property in that time frame. So I definitely... Mm -hmm. 
think that people need to consider whether selling their house first makes sense because yeah, you don't want to feel pressure to find a house in 60 or 90 days. I mean, I guess you could kind of rent in the interim, but I don't know about you, but I don't really feel like putting my stuff in storage and renting until I can find a place. So yeah, it certainly helps being a first time home buyer and not having that added pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't even imagine because we started looking in March and didn't end up buying until like late July, I think. And we were able to get, you know, two months notice to our landlord with the condo. So we had the utmost of flexibility. We didn't really feel that pressure because we were obviously able to negotiate our close date around what would give us enough time to give that notice. But I imagine it must be a lot more challenging if you're buying and selling at the same time. Oh, definitely. So to deal with high home prices, we're often told to drive until you qualify. That's exactly what you did. You went from renting in downtown Toronto to living in a detached home in the suburbs. How are you adjusting to life in the burbs? Well, it's been a huge adjustment in good ways and also challenging ways. So one of the biggest pros has been just the space that we have. Um, I have my own office now and beforehand, my desk was like in our dining room, which was like right next to our kitchen and right next to the TV room in the condo because it was so small. Not that it made it hard for me to take my business seriously, but it didn't give me the productivity and kind of the separation from the rest of my life that I have now. So every morning I go into my office, I work there during the day, I leave at the end of the day, and it just gives me that separation that I didn't have before. So that's been one of the, the best things about having the extra bedroom in the new house. So that's been fantastic. It's also been great in terms of just having family and friends over. Before, it was really challenging to host a lot of things because like, if anyone needed to stay over, we only had a couch and it wasn't a pull-out couch. Now we actually have a guest bedroom. So my parents, if they come in from Ottawa, have somewhere to stay. And we can just have bigger groups of people over for you know, a Super Bowl party or a family birthday or something like that. So that's been great, just at what it's opened up in terms of being able to host and really spend time with people close to us. It's also way less noisy and chaotic. Before, when we were in the city, we lived right next to the Rogers Center, and it was so loud around the Jays games. And I mean, I'm a huge Jays fan and like the excitement, but at the same time, if you're trying to go anywhere, you know, drive anywhere around, you know, on a Jays game day, especially giveaway day, it was so challenging because there's so many people and roads would be closed. So just all of that chaos made it just kind of hard to be there, whereas now we don't have that. And also being here, it's really easy just to zip out to a grocery store, Walmart, any big box store that you need. Whereas when we lived in Toronto, we had to be more mindful of what times we went, where the locations were, and you always had to kind of get out of the core to, to get to any of the bigger stores. So those are some of the pros. On the flip side, my husband commutes to and from work on the GO train, and it takes him about an hour and 20 minutes each way each day. So that definitely adds up. Um, I think it's more enjoyable to take the GO train than drive because, you know, you can read, you can listen to music or whatever you want, but that's definitely added commuting time that he didn't used to have. And then probably the biggest challenge for me is because we only have one car and he takes it every day or most days, I'm a bit more stranded at home. And as it is, I mean, I'm working on my businesses full time. I don't have a huge need to go out and do things during the day, but I do feel a little bit stranded at times where I have to be more mindful of 
asking for the car specific dates if I have appointments. So I don't have the same flexibility that I did when I could just, you know, walk or take the subway anywhere that I wanted to. So definitely pros and cons, but I would say overall it's been, it's been a big adjustment, but we're just loving being here. Awesome. That's great to hear. So you're a big fan of side hustle. You successfully turned your side hustle into a full-time career, but developing a side hustle isn't easy. How can someone choose the right side hustle? So I actually wrote a whole blog post about this. I think it's called How to Choose the Best Side Hustle for You. So if you search Beyond the Safe Harbor for that, you can find it. And I've posed four questions that I recommend anyone ask themselves before making the move. So the first thing is, really, what's your objective? Is this about earning an extra $200 a month so that you can go on vacation? Is this something you want to start to test the waters? And if it actually does well, you'd want this to be your full-time job? Like, what are you going in kind of hoping and expecting? Because if you have a grander objective, you're probably going to have to put in more time and maybe more money into actually getting it off the ground. If it's something where it's just about a few extra bucks, then that will obviously shape what types of things you pursue. The second question is, what are you passionate about? And I've done a whole video about finding your passion, but it's really, you know, how can you monetize something that you already enjoy doing? To me, that's the best kind of work. So that would be the second question. It's really identifying what you feel your purpose is and how you can leverage that. The third one is, when will you work on your side hustle? Say, for example, you work nine to five and you have a lot of flexibility other than that and your work hours are pretty set then you can probably carve out time on a regular basis to work on your side hustle. So with my Etsy shop, for example, I need to have time at least every two to three days to fulfill orders or else my processing times, I won't be adhering to them. So you kind of need to have that. Whereas if you traveled all the time, then running an online, like an e-commerce shop would probably be more challenging if you're actually selling physical products. So just thinking about what your schedule is like that'll definitely impact uh, what types of opportunities you should pursue. And then lastly, what kind of lifestyle you want. So again, like with the traveling example, if you want to travel and you want to be earning money more in terms of passive income, then maybe something like blogging or affiliate marketing or self-publishing eBooks would be valuable because you can work on it whenever you want and you don't have to ever be anchored to one specific place. So just thinking about that lifestyle and where you, where you hope to be in the future, that'll help make sure that you're choosing an opportunity that will cater to that. So yeah, those four questions will help you get more laser focused on what types of opportunities would be the best fit. And that was a great answer. And I'll be sure to include the link in the show notes. Thank you. So weddings can be expensive. They can almost be as much as the down payment on a house, sometimes more. How did you manage to have your dream wedding without derailing your financial goals like buying a house? That's a great question. And we actually bought our home about a month after getting engaged. So there was a lot happening at once. We really just tried to keep things separate. So before we booked anything for the wedding, we had reached out to a bunch of venues to get a high level sense of what the costs were. And we knew that the venue, especially the ones that provide their own catering, that would be the bulk of the cost. So we were able to use that and then other resources and tools um, around average cost of different things for weddings to put a budget together. And then we really just worked to keep that separate. So we had our wedding budget that included everything we could think of, including buffer. 
and kept that as a separate budget and separate funds from the housing costs, like from the closing costs and all of that, that we were already anticipating on the house front. So I would say like my advice would be just getting all your ducks in a row before booking things, giving yourself lots of buffer and leeway in, in both budgets, and then just having that visibility and the transparency um, with your partner too, so that you're aware of kind of where things stand and you're sure that you're gonna be able to cover everything. So you definitely don't want to not have your dream day because of the house purchase, but at the same time, it kind of keeps you in check and makes sure that you are balancing your different financial commitments and making sure that you're not going to put yourself in a jeopardizing situation for either one. Great, that was a wonderful answer. Now, you mentioned that you wanted to start a family one day. How did that factor into the house that you ended up buying? Yeah, it definitely played a role because if we thought it would just be the two of us, then we probably would have looked at uh, maybe just a larger condo, maybe a townhouse, something like that, or maybe like even a two-bedroom home. But for us, we knew that we wanted a house with at least three bedrooms to give us kind of more space and the flexibility. Because even if you think about it, three bedrooms could be a master bedroom, a guest room, and an office. So that doesn't even account for kids' bedrooms. So we had that in our minds. Um, we wanted at least two bathrooms as well, ideally three to give ourselves more flexibility too for a growing family. And then we also wanted to have a grassy backyard so we'd have a bit of kind of green space to play because we saw a lot of places, especially in Toronto, where the backyard would be like the entire backyard was a deck or the entire backyard was concrete. And now that we have grass to mow every five days, I definitely get why people do that. And there's definitely, you know, pros and cons of both, but we just wanted to have some green space. And that was, you know, driven not only for ourselves, but also thinking about, you know, making it more conducive to, uh, to where kids would want to be outside. So those were some of the attributes that we looked at in terms of the house itself. And then we also made sure that we were looking at family-friendly neighborhoods, at areas that had schools nearby. And then also even just looking at Burlington as a whole, I think it was probably within the last two, three years, there was a Money Sense article about the best places to live in Canada. And they talk about the best places to raise a family. And I think Burlington was number two. So, you know, when we were looking, we could have looked at Ajax, Whitby, Hamilton, Oakville, like tons of places that were still probably within an hour of the core. But Burlington really caught our eye because it's supposedly a great place to raise a family. And also um, my husband's sister lives here with her boyfriend as well. So just knowing that moving here, we'd already have a few people that we knew that made it a little bit more reassuring. Great. So Kate, it's been great having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. First of all, I'm always um, producing new content for my blog, Beyond the Safe Harbor. So that's um, www.beyondthesafeharbor.com. Posted a lot about choosing your side hustle, how to turn your side hustle into a full-time business, different tools for solopreneurs and entrepreneurs. So if you are interested in pursuing, um, you know, growing your business or even just starting a business on the side, I have tons of articles and resources, favorite tools, all of that information you can find on my website. I also have an email list where every Tuesday I send either a thought-provoking or a motivating or encouraging email for people who are really looking at living their best lives. So 
personal development or financial freedom, making a difference, those types of topics. You can also subscribe to my newsletter on my website. I definitely look forward to those emails every week. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Kate. Oh, thank you for having me, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647-867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.